Hey, good morning. You know, every single weekend, barring some natural disaster, as a church family, we gather for worship. On our West Campus, we come into this very room and sit in these chairs downtown at Brazos Hall when there's no South by Southwest or Formula One or anything else. But we gather together for worship. We gather together for fellowship, to get together and just be encouraged by each other. But I think it's important for us to remember why we gather. We gather together not just to sing beautifully at the top of our lungs with great enthusiasm and passion. We gather together because of the gospel. We gather together because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Now, last weekend we started this series called Walk This Way, where we're examining the last days and weeks of Christ's life before he went to the cross and before he rose again, which we celebrate in Easter coming up in just a few weeks. But I think it's imperative as we talk about walk this way, that we remember what the gospel is all about. Remember John 3.16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I mean, in a nutshell, that's the gospel, that God loves the world. God loves you. He loves me. God loves everyone so much that he gave his son, Jesus. This is the essence of the gospel. Now, the gospel is revolutionary. The gospel radically alters the trajectory of lives, personally and individually, but also collectively. And if the gospel is true, and we believe that it is, then the gospel changes everything. The gospel means every part of life is to be different. That as you and I follow Christ, we walk his way. And so, yes, we gather together. Yes, this matters. But only so far as it equips us for when we walk out the door, that our lives look different. You know, every single Sunday, most of us drive by the Spur building, either coming in or going out of our parking lot. But I think it's important to remember what really this is all about. Of course, Hebrews 10, 24 is one of the anchor verses for our church family. Let us consider, let's really think about how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And it's this building that is the epicenter, the nerve center for us as a church family to spur one another on towards good deeds out of our love for Christ and our love for other people. To spur one another on means that we really truly think about it. We, we get intentional. We get deliberate about bringing the passion, bringing the compassion of God to the least of these, to our brothers and sisters. That's what this is all about. I think the thing that we've got to remember at all times is that the gospel is all about people. It is initiated by God, no doubt about it. It is for the glory of God. 
But the goal of the gospel is the restoration of people just like you and me in every single facet of life. You see, Jesus does not distinguish between the spiritual and the physical. Jesus unites the spiritual and the physical. As a matter of fact, as we continue this series, Walk This Way, and we follow the life of Jesus just before he comes to the cross, in the book of Matthew, there's this incredible dichotomy united in the person of Christ. At the end of Matthew 25 and the beginning of Matthew 26, Jesus brings these things to a very fine point in a way that can create some dissonance and some uncertainty. But when you look at the life of Christ, when you look at the totality of Scripture, you see that Jesus is ultimately uniting the spiritual and the physical. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus makes a very, very strong statement about what will ultimately happen at the end times when he returns and he says that he will separate the sheep from the goats. He will separate believers from non-believers. And he will say, at this point, it'll be clear who's on board. And he makes that distinction largely based on the fruit of our faith. He says, how we treat people that can't help us, how we treat those who are less fortunate, that will be one of the determining factors in where we spend eternity. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Jesus says, how we treat the poor, how we care for, how we restore the poor is a massive, massive declaration of what we believe about who he is and what he's ultimately up to in this world. But then in Matthew 26, there's this incredible exchange between Jesus and and the disciples. The Bible says that Jesus is at this meal, and at this meal are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as usual, Martha is busy serving and scurrying around, but it is Mary who is at the feet of Jesus, and she takes, the Bible says, a very, very expensive perfume and anoints the feet of Jesus. And I love how the Bible describes the disciples' response. In Matthew 26, it says, the disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Man, how many times do we hear that? Why did you do this? Why would you spend that money on that? There are poor people in the world. Valid point. But look at what Jesus said here in verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, let me be very clear. Jesus is not in any way saying that the poor are always going to be here. Don't worry about it. But he's putting caring for the poor, compassion, in the context of the gospel. And the gospel, as I said, always unites the spiritual and the physical. You see, the disciples freaked out over this woman's extravagant worship of Jesus. They went absolutely nuts. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. 
Matthew says the disciples were indignant. But in the Gospel of John, John identifies the one disciple who actually said this, Judas. It was Judas who said, why not take that perfume, sell it, and give the money to the poor? Judas, who just a few days later would betray Jesus for a sum of money about half of what this perfume was worth. Jesus is saying here, you've got to remember the entirety of the gospel. The entirety of the gospel changes everything. The gospel is about worship. The gospel is about obedience. The gospel is absolutely about compassion for the poor. But compassion for the poor and the gospel are not the same thing by themselves. Compassion for the poor is a subset of the gospel because the gospel is all about people. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Matthew chapter 25, he says, you care for the poor. If you love me, you love everybody around you. And he says, the least of these are my brothers and sisters. These are Jesus' brothers and sisters. We're commanded to care for them, to reach out for them. But i got to warn you, compassion is intoxicating. When you step outside of your comfort zone, when you make a difference in somebody's life, it changes everything. But if we're not careful, we can begin to worship compassion itself. We can begin to equate compassion with the gospel. When in reality, compassion is an expression of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 25 and 26. In Matthew 26, when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with this incredibly expensive perfume, she's making a statement of worship. She's saying, there is no price too great for the worship of my Savior. It's the disciples who get kind of hot and bothered, and they're like, whoa, what are we doing? What are we doing? You can't do that. Jesus said, whoa, 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 worship before everything else. Worship is everything else. And then when we worship, we also care for the poor. You know, there are a lot of books being written right now about this very subject. There are a lot of things that are out there competing for our time and attention and money. And so just very quickly, I want to mention to you Three books that I think put compassion in a great perspective, a great biblical perspective. The first book I would mention to you is written by a guy by the name of Richard Stearns. Richard is the CEO of World Vision International. He's an interesting guy by himself. He used to be the CEO of Linux China, selling luxury goods, and now he's, a, he's leading an effort that assists the poor in disasters, and day-in-and-day-out sustenance around the world. And Richard's book is The Whole in Our Gospel, a phenomenal book. The second book I would tell you about is written by Tim Keller. Tim is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, and he's written a book called Generous Justice that's a little more theological in nature, a little more academic maybe, but it frames compassion and the gospel beautifully and accurately. And then there's a third book that I think does so much to help us understand how to do compassion. It's called When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Great, great books that I think, again, frame compassion and the gospel accurately and biblically. You need to know something. 
There is a lot of junk out there right now about compassion. A lot of stuff that chases rabbits and becomes a distraction to the gospel. So I recommend these three to you strongly and heartily because I think they're biblical, I think they're accurate, and they help us focus on what we need to be focused on. As a matter of fact, when helping hurts, I think really helps us to understand what compassion is supposed to be all about. Check this out. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. Now, shalom is a great Hebrew word that most of us are familiar with. Shalom. Matter of fact, say that with me right now. On the count of three, I want you to say the word shalom. One, two, three. Shalom. It's a great word. We understand the word to mean peace. And that is definitely a part of it, but it's not really the whole picture. The word shalom actually means peace or wholeness, completeness. It is the picture of what God intended when he created humanity and put us in the garden. He gave us everything that we would need for our shalom. But when sin entered the world, when humanity made the decision to stiff-arm God and to walk away from what he had intended for us, all of a sudden, brokenness, incompleteness, poverty, disease entered the picture. And so our job as Christ followers is to do everything that we can to restore shalom, to restore shalom in our homes, to restore shalom in our schools, in our businesses, our marketplace, but in our world at large. When we see people afflicted by poverty, it ought to cause something inside of us to go, whoa, that's a reflection of the brokenness in this world. What can I do? What does God want me to do to restore shalom in this world, to restore shalom in the life of that man or that woman right there? This is the heart of compassion. You see, the word compassion simply means suffering with. The word passion comes from the Latin word that we get the passion, as in the passion of the Christ when Jesus suffered on the cross. And compassion means that we suffer with people. It doesn't just mean that we are sympathetic and we go, oh, that's too bad, but that we actually get down into their lives. We get down into the root causes of poverty, into the root causes of this brokenness, and do something about it. As a church family, that's why we are committed to mobile loaves and fishes right here in Austin, to serve as many people as we can, and also, especially through that Community First project, to restore people, to lift them up and give them the opportunity to participate themselves in lifting themselves up out of that brokenness, that cyclical poverty that is so soul-crushing. As a church, we get to do this on a regular basis. That's why we're committed to Haiti. We didn't just take a love offering on the Sunday after the earthquake in Haiti. 
We have created a relationship with our orphanage there in Haiti to serve those kids a meal every single day. You and I, as we tithe, we feed that orphanage every day. We have mission trips, compassion trips that reestablish and reconnect the relationship between Lake Hills Church and that orphanage to help those children discover the wholeness and the shalom of God through our love. This is what we do on a regular basis, and as needed, we have those opportunities. Compassion is kind of a big deal. Jesus said, whatever we do to the least of these, we do it to him. We do it for him. One of my favorite passages of scripture is found in the Old Testament in the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter number six, the Bible, I think, does us a huge favor when it just kind of lays it out bottom line. This is what Micah 6 says. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The bottom line. This is what God requires of us who will walk this way, who will follow Christ, that we will act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Y'all, let Mac has just delivered an incredible understanding of Lake Hills Church, Compassion Ministries, and how that relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would like for us to give Mac a hand. So, okay, loud enough. He's in Florida, so let's loud enough for him to hear us in Florida. Thank y'all. It's hard for me to clap this way, okay? If I were to clap this way, then I would drive everybody out. And uh, so I want to thank Mac for doing that and connecting the dots between what compassion looks like and what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. How do those fit together? And you know what? The poor are not the only ones who need their relationship with God restored. They do. That's why we deliver the gospel in our compassion ministries. But there, everybody needs a restored relationship with God in order to get to the peace, the completeness, the wholeness that Mac was talking about. You know, Mac quoted that scripture in Micah. And I want to call attention to two things that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love mercy, according to Micah, that God requires us to love mercy, and God requires us to, to act justly. Jesus did that, probably more uh, uh, at a higher level than any of us have ever thought about loving mercy and acting justly. Jesus loved mercy so much that he could not even bear the thought of any one of us spending eternity from now into eternity without God. He loves mercy. He delights in it. He delights in giving back that relationship that people are, dis are created to have with God. He loves mercy. And because he loves mercy so much, 
he then went on and accomplished the greatest, most courageous single act of justice that this world has ever seen. And that occurred when Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, stepped in front of the just sentence against our sin, and he took it upon himself. He died so we could live. An incredible act of justice. I don't want us to leave here today without giving everyone here an opportunity to make sure that their relationship with God is whole and complete, lacking nothing. Some of you may have never even entered into that relationship with God. It's really not hard from a standpoint of anything we need to do. The Bible makes it very clear that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. We'll enter into that whole complete eternal life that God has for us. That has two parts to it. Let's talk about that believing part. Do you believe in your heart that God, that Jesus Christ did die on a cross and God raised him from the dead? Do you really believe that? I mean, that's the crux. The crux. God gave his own son, his only begotten son, that, that, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's super important. Do you believe that? That Jesus Christ did die on a cross for your sins and God raised him from the dead. That's a key to being able to go to the next step, which is with your mouth to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and be your Lord. If you have never done that, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So would everyone please bow your heads. Everybody bow your heads. And if you have never entered into that life-changing relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross and God raised him from the dead? Then just tell God that. Say, God, I believe that Jesus died on a cross for me. And you raised him from the dead. And then, with your mouth, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and be your Lord. That's it. He promised he'll come in. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me and you open the door, I'll come in. He promised he's not going to lie to you. But you need to ask him, Jesus, come into my life and be my Lord. And then you can say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming into my life and becoming my Lord. Now, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time and you asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and be your Lord, then I'm going to ask you just hold your hand up. Hold your hand up. Nobody here is going to come up to you and, 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 and try and get you to do anything else. Just hold your hand up. This is to God. God, I'm here. I just asked Jesus Christ, your son, to come into my life and be my Lord. God, this is me. I'm right here. I am yours now, God. Hold your hand up to God. Now, we have a tradition here that when you put your hands down, 
we put ours together. So we want to do that right now.